It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store today. I hope you enjoyed yesterday's Christmas in July. It was a repeat from uh, Christmas Eve of uh, 21, and uh, I know I enjoyed it because it meant a day off for me, but uh, we're back Back at the mic and uh, back to some great shows. In fact, coming up tomorrow, of course, uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, is always armchair politics. But Mark Everson from Mississippi, uh, former high-ranking government official in two presidential administrations, will be joining our roundtable regulars. Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right for our two-hour weekly roundtable with commentary and analysis from uh, headlines from the worlds of politics and current events, as we do each and every Wednesday for two hours. But we're going to start out tomorrow with uh, uh, another uh, another new interview with um, Flint Mayor Sheldon Neely, who wants to talk some more about the... Um, uh, addition of new funds... Um, to the uh, uh, retirement funds, and we'll talk about that. And we'll also um, get a chance to uh, check in and talk to GOP gubernatorial candidate Tudor uh, Dixon will be on the show tomorrow. But today on the show, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, an investigative reporter and author, uh, Sally Denton, about her investigation into the 2019 killings of nine Mormons in northern Mexico, which drew international attention. The book is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land by Sally Denton. She'll be joining me during the third half of our three-hour tour. And uh, coming up in the middle, in the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with, um, this is uh, an interesting uh, kind of book that challenges the notion that science and religion are incompatible. The book is called Every When, uh, God, Symmetry, and Time by uh, MIT-trained physicist Dr. Thomas Sheehan. And uh, he'll be joining me coming up in about an hour or so. But first, we're going to talk about, uh, well, we're going to talk with uh, a guest who's uh, author of a new book called Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab. Falgany A. Sheth, 
uh, is a uh, professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory University and uh, the author of that book and it's it's a very interesting um, it's a compelling look at liberal biases against uh, Muslim women of color in the United States and uh, and compare that to uh, other countries like France, Belgium, Denmark, Austria, China, and others. Um, pretty interesting subject and an interesting conversation. It actually, the conversation actually took place last week. Um, this was the first opportunity I had to air it, and I hope you'll enjoy it. I know that uh, I found it to be a very fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, Falconi is also the author of uh, Toward a Political Philosophy of Race, and let's see what else um oh co-editor of race liberalism and economics um, published by the university of michigan press and uh anyway she's uh, she's very interesting and i think you'll enjoy it so stay tuned we have uh, falconies coming up in in just about 30 seconds or so and then uh stay with us because we have a great show in store uh, throughout the day today and of course don't forget um, Mark Everson joining uh, the roundtable for armchair politics plus our conversations tomorrow with uh, Mayor Sheldon Neely of Flint and uh, GOP candidate for governor Tudor Dixon Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk about something uh, a little bit different this uh, this hour. It's uh, We're going to talk with uh, a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory University and the author of a new book called Unruly Women. And we're going to be talking about uh, hijabs, which I just learned how to stay, say today, uh, from uh, that author and professor... Falgany Sheth, who joins me by phone. Falgany, good morning and welcome to the show. Uh, great to be here, Tom. Thank you. And please forgive me if I if I fumble some pronunciations. You've been very gracious about teaching me how to say some things that are new to me, but uh, and and I'm terrible with names and titles and all that kind of stuff. But let's talk about um, the title of the book, "Unruly Women." Um, I generally think of women that I've seen out and about wearing uh, hijabs as uh, being kind of low profile. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's probably right. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily refer to them as unruly because they um, are somehow, you know, uh, really kind of acting out or something like that, but because that's how they're perceived when they wear hijab or niqab or some other kind of uh, covering. So visibly women, visibly Muslim women are like other um, women of color who do things that may um, not, com you know, may not be consistent with what American feminists or liberal feminists or European feminists think is proper behavior, they end up being seen as unruly. Um, and so that's why I have the name that I do, because 
it's really about perceiving them as being defiant because they're wearing the hijab. And the context, in my case, is um, is about employment discrimination for the most part, but other kinds of discrimination, religious discrimination as well, um, for women who wear the headscarf or wear the veil or wear the hijab who um, have been treated unfairly in their place of work. And if they decide that they want to sue um, on the grounds that they have been discriminated against, often the courts rule against them and suggest that they could be much more accommodating than they are. So that's why, in a nutshell, I, I've titled the book Unruly Women. I came across a, a word in, uh, in some notes um, that had been forwarded to me about you and about your book, and, and I've kind of lost it in my notes, but I think the word was um, burkini. A burkini. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so... Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's it's some kind of swimwear that conforms to Muslim face covering and modesty practices. I mean, not so much face covering, but yes, um, that does. It is about concealing. It basically looks like you know, kind of a one piece um, scuba outfit, although it's much lighter than that. Um, so yeah, a burkini in the sense that it covers up the whole body, including the hair. That's not so much an issue here as much as it has become an issue on the beaches of France, where there is much more kind of active policing um, by the French government and by the police um, with regard to women who who wear such outfits. But what's interesting about it is that um, Asian women, notably Chinese women, also have a very, very similar outfit, almost identical um, which is worn in order to protect themselves from the rays of the sun. And they're not policed in the same way, even though the outfits are very similar. Well, you point out in your book that um, Americans, and, and America is supposed to be the place that's going to teach the world how to treat women, right? Right. You point out that, that women, uh, that are Muslim and wear hijab and, and other related accoutrements um, are treated very differently than, for example, Catholic nuns and uh, some of the, the Jewish women and, and some of the hair covering and things that they do. Right. Yes. They do, um, but they they end up being perceived, and yeah. Does it make Judge a difference whether the face is covered or not? I mean, we certainly. I think that was a has been a very big issue, right? The covering of the face, which I think, in the context of you know a liberal society, has kind of been viewed as antithetical to our. Um, preference for transparency and being able to, you know, see each other's faces and recognize each other. Um, but, you know, I would suggest that the last two years of COVID have really challenged that assumption. Um, and in particular, there's a fascinating case that happened in your state uh, 
around 2007, where there was a woman by the name of Jenna Muhammad who um, walked into a small claims court in Hamtrak, Michigan, and, um, you know, it wasn't an employment discrimination court. Oh, please, please, please let me interrupt for just a moment and correct your pronunciation. It's Hamtramck. I know. And, and, <laughs> I, and, and I, I'm, I'm only doing that in the spirit of friendship. You've been so gracious to teach me how to pronounce some things. And, and I am familiar with that town, and it's, it's pronounced locally Hamtramck. Hamtramck, Michigan. Thank yep. you for correcting me. I had some students who corrected me, but obviously I forget um, <laughs> as well. Um, so anyway, so she walked into a small place court wanting to um, basically, you know, demand her money back from a car rental agency who she thought had incorrectly sued her or, you know, had charged her for a damaged car. And the judge in that case, Paul Parrick, um, insisted that she take off her niqab. She had a niqab on, so that is a face covering. It leaves the eyes unconcealed, but the rest of the face is concealed. And although it was referred to in the court transcript as a hijab, so that was confusing when I was doing my work. Um, and she very politely refused. She said, I can't. This is really a part of my religion. This is a part of my commitment to my, uh, to my religious uh, observances. And he basically said, no, that's not true. This is a culture thing. It's a choice that you're making. Um, and you know how I know that? Because I've talked to practicing Muslims who say that the hijab is a religious thing, but not this. And it was a really strange, very strange exchange. And she said, no, 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 it really is a part of my religious commitment, and I'm happy to take it off in front of um, a, a woman judge, a female judge, if, if you know, if you insist. And he said, well, there is none. And if you don't take it off in front of me, um, I'm going to dismiss the case. And his grounds for this were that he couldn't see her face, so he couldn't verify whether or not she was telling the truth. Now, this wasn't a murder case. It wasn't a gangster case. It was, it was small claims court. And, you know, as the ACLU of Michigan filed a letter, she, she basically doubled down and, and decided to sue for not having had her case heard um, on the grounds of discrimination in his courtroom. And the ACLU filed a letter and said, well, you know, this idea that you have to see someone, a witness's face, um, or anyone's face in a courtroom, you know, is really not as stringent as we might think. In fact, you have blind judges, you have witnesses who were in protection programs who might deliver pre-recorded testimony or who might, um, uh, you know, testify from behind a curtain. So you don't actually need to see someone's face to do this. But that case went all the way up to the Michigan Superior um, Court, and they sided with the judge. In fact, they expanded the rule that gave judges authority in their class, uh, in their courtrooms and said they have unconditional authority to decide how their courtroom will be run, including, you know, what witnesses wear. We're talking about hijab with uh, Falgany Sheth from Emory University and author of Unruly Women, and we'll have more straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. We're talking about hijab with uh, Falgany Sheth from Emory University and author of Unruly Women, and we'll have more straight ahead. It was kind of an interesting case because now, as we see over the last two years with COVID, people wear masks, especially in courtrooms. A lot of cases are conducted by Zoom, but often when they are conducted in a courtroom, people are wearing masks, and the question of credibility with regard to being able to see somebody's face doesn't occur at all. Which is really strange. I I had a, a kind of a funny moment when they first opened up bank lobbies, and I went into a bank to transact some business, and there were a handful of people, you know, fairly distanced and so on in the bank, but all wearing masks. And I I couldn't help but snicker a little because had that happened a year earlier, there'd have been people pushing alarm buttons. (laughs) You you didn't wear a mask into a bank. Um, and, And I wonder, because for so long, driver's licenses and ID cards have had a photo, and it's routine to check and see if the face matches the face on on the ID or the license. And that is so commonly practiced. And and I think even about the use of um, uh, uh, facial recognition stuff in in, uh, airports, I, I would think that there are a lot of reasons why people are pretty uncomfortable about the face covering. Now, just wearing a hibab, not so much, but... I, I would think that the mask thing is a little bit off-putting, and also because it's thought of like a mask, like somebody trying to cover up their face and, and hide their identity from you. You know, it's really interesting that, that you're talking about this. You're right, but at least since 9-11, we've had pretty strict security. TSA has implemented lots and lots of rules. Um, and... Um, you know, but I think that it's important to remember the context in which airport rules and security rules really became dramatic. They became dramatic in the aftermath of 9-11. And I think there was this sense of, well, we can't, there was a sense of fear and a sense of danger and this idea that, well, we can't trust people unless we can see them or unless they're we familiar. We can't trust Muslims. Exactly. Was the feeling. Or, or I mean, let's, dark. you know, let's call it what it was. You know, people were absolutely terrified of anyone from the Middle East. Well, and the fact is that, you know, once COVID masks were being instituted or any kind of um, coverage, remember, there were black men walking into, um, I think it was Target or Walmart with bandanas who were arrested for actually trying to comply with public health regulations. So, Yes, Muslims, but also dark people (laughs) as being folks who are particularly suspicious or not trustworthy. And I think that's how this gets directed, the fear, Um, you know, that you, you ask about trust and credibility with regard to people that you don't feel comfortable around. Well, and it's... um you know, under certain circumstances, and I was thinking of the courtroom example, and and that's that's so frustrating because, um, you know, how do you how do you identify someone as the person who, in that particular case, rented the car? 
Yes. Um, I mean, that could be true, although the fact is that, you know, is it really, do we really need to see somebody's face? Can't we just kind of see their IDs or credit cards? And you make make a great point because I know, and I have known multiple judges who were blind. And and that's an interesting point that, you know, they, they don't mind the exception of facial recognition under those circumstances. Yeah, we have lots and lots of ways of verifying identity. We have a lot of different ways of verifying credibility. Um, you know, and there have been a number of studies, which I mentioned in my book, about, you know, people in court, or, you know, just photographs of people where, you know, um, there's, there's like a test base of, of people who are asked to pick out trustworthy faces. And by and large, they're not dark faces. They're, you know, generally lighter skin faces. Um, they're, they're faces that have smiles. But, you know, smiling is also a kind of culturally specific thing. Um, and, you know, there is a sense of, well, if somebody expresses their emotions and their earnestness in a way that's familiar to me, then I can trust them. But that's not the same thing as saying that that's actually what they're feeling. And so, you know, we often kind of judge um, witnesses much more harshly if, or even defendants in courtrooms, if they don't express remorse in the way that we think they should be expressing remorse. So credibility is an interesting um, standard and a criteria for judging credibility. I think we really need to, to explore some more and rethink. But I think part of how people in the U.S., and I, and I can't really speak to this in other parts of the world, but in the U.S., there's, there's a certain amount of becoming familiar with people, getting to know people, and some of that is, you know, physical recognition, body language, and facial expressions, and, and those kinds of things. And we sort of take those things for granted, and then when we're confronted by something that challenges that, it's it it, it seems almost understandable how some people would dismiss that. I think you've totally um, got this right. You know, I think that we're just more comfortable with gestures that are familiar, and I, you know, I think- I. I, I Delgany, I I want to think that I am open to everything and everyone. But I have to admit, when I can't see someone's face and, and, you know, get to know them through their facial expressions and body language and so on, I'm a little put off by that. Well, I mean, then COVID must have been a pretty disturbing time. <laughs> Absolutely. Because there's been a lot of that. But I but I didn't um, I didn't leave the house that much. I I didn't go out a lot. Well, but there are other ways of getting around it. And the other thing is the niqab is not something it's not nearly as prevalent as the hijab, right? The hijab is actually covering the hair and not necessarily the face. So Yeah, that's that's not the, that's not the issue I'm talking about. I'm talking about when it um when it covers the the face that's 
Um, and yeah, I the masks were kind of weird, especially people who got decorative masks. That creeped me out a little bit. <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, it's it's not that I don't want to get around it. It's just challenging. I I get your point, but I think we also learn to compensate, right? We learn to compensate to find other forms of verify, you know, other forms of verification if we're denied one. So, you know, you know, remember, um, I'm just thinking about the kinds of identification that we use, you know, once upon a time when you wrote a check, you had to provide a driver's license. And at some point that became illegal that you weren't, you know, you couldn't force someone to produce a driver's license, so then you could produce a credit card. So, you know, there are different forms of verification, and I'm sure that, you know, we're smart enough to be able to come up with other ways of verifying credibility. But I would say the other question that I really have for you is, you know, we have to kind of, you know, don't we have to really ask ourselves whether or not what that fear is is legitimate? Oh, absolutely. Or is it just a generic fear? Absolutely. You know, I'm... um... I, I'm not trying to defend my behavior. I'm trying to lay it out there. So I'm going, why do I do this? Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think we all need to kind of do a little bit of that um, self-assessment and think about what our reactions are coming from and whether or not there's a lot of fear mongering that's inducing that. So, for example, I actually get, you know, um, back when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, I grew up in in New Jersey and New York City, you know, I was extremely afraid walking down the street when it got dark in the winter, got dark pretty early. If there was someone who was unknown, especially male behind me, um, you know, and part of that is the power dynamic, right? It's like if I'm not as large as somebody else, I'm not quite sure why they're there. I mean, you're assessing all kinds of other conditions. So I get your point. But you can be scared of people even if they're not wearing masks. And oh, I would say if you are if they are wearing a niqab or something, the question is what is their right, what's the source of your discomfort? Is it something that requires someone to take off the niqab? Or is it just that it's an unfamiliar practice? In which case that's a, you know, that needs to be reckoned with slightly differently. Well, and you were talking about uh, having alternative methods of identification and verification and and that sort of thing but those are in business settings and i'm thinking more in a in a social kind of setting because i like to think of myself as being somewhat warm and friendly i I try to be Um, but then if there's something that that seems difficult or if there's some sort of hurdle to get around um, i'm i'm apt to you know, disregard it or, or put that person aside and move on to, to someone else, which, you know, is the rankest kind of discrimination I can imagine. And and while I don't want to be that way, I'm sure that I am sometimes. But I think we do that also, you know, with other, with lots of folks who make us uncomfortable. Oh, and hair and eye are, color and people who wear baseball hats backwards and, you know, there's all Well, kinds of or African-Americans <laughs> who have natural hair, right? This is actually, yeah. um, but I mean, so I'm not sure that, you know, we need to account for all kinds of 
um, you know, discriminatory treatment. That's why I'm, I've really limited what I'm talking about um, to courtrooms and court cases and the law, because those things are much more systematic and they hold a lot more authority. But how do we, how do we interact with people of this faith and that, that have these practices um, in, in a way that, that is warm and friendly? And I, I don't mean intimate, um, you know, in ways of touching or hugging or kissing or, you know, anything like that. But, but how do we interact in a social setting in a way that's open and friendly? I don't think it's going to be instantaneous, but I mean, you know, there has been a very significant religious Muslim community in Michigan and various parts of Michigan for at least a hundred years. Right. So the question is, it's about, you know, integrating, integrating the different parts of the community. So you get to know each other. You try to, you know, have community events that include them and vice versa, and try to have a better, you know, a better sense of a better conversation, have more conversations, get to know them during id, during iftar, um, get to learn what the religious practices are. I think that is, you know, I think familiarity actually breeds collegiality, not contempt, but collegiality and neighborliness. And that is, has to be an ongoing practice. And part of that has to, you know, has to involve the question of why is it that we think that these things are backwards and, and really be ready to wrestle with it and to say, well, actually, maybe we're wrong. Are there questions we shouldn't ask? In what context? In trying to get to know someone who seems cut off from us by virtue of their coverings. Um... Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I do. But, I mean, the rules of etiquette are such that, you know, if you have, I don't know, um, an oxygen tank that you're wearing around as you walk around, if I don't know you, I probably won't ask you about it, right? I mean, rules of politeness are such that you ask questions as you become more comfortable. So I wouldn't go up to somebody and ask them why they wear the hijab. I wouldn't go up to somebody and ask them why they wear the niqab but rather ask about something that is really innocuous and get to know them before and before you decide to take the risk of asking them about their religious preferences, right? We don't normally walk up to people or even nuns and say, gee, how'd you decide to become a nun? I mean, you have a lot of conversation before you do that. <laughs> and I know this because I've got a, a very good friend who was a nun. Um, and so, you know, it's really just the standard rules of etiquette. You ask questions, you get to know people slowly and gently. And then at some point, if you feel comfortable, you ask uh, more significant and meaningful questions. Well, let me, let me try one on you. What is the, um, what is the religious significance of covering women and not men? That you're going to have to talk to somebody who is um, actively covering, uh, or there's lots of 
newspaper articles and magazines about it. I mean, I think every single person who covers has a slightly different reason in the same way that every single religious Catholic or religious Jew or, or religious Hindu or practicing Hindu, everybody has a different reason for the way that they have a relationship with their religion. So I'm not sure that I'm in a position to be able to answer that question because I don't think that one answer fits all. But is there is there something, is there some instruction in the teachings of Islam that that says women should be covered? It's the same kind of, it's up for the same kind of uh, literary readings and interpretations as when somebody reads the Bible. Does the Bible really endorse this particular way of dealing with our enemies? Does the Bible prohibit certain reproductive practices, right? There's going to be a lot of debate. And so I think... Is there a job description and a dress code for nuns? Exactly. I don't know. (laughs) Not that I know of. (laughs) Not, Not that I've ever come across. So that's the thing, right? So I think... You know, those are really varied differences. I mean, I I think part of... But I think getting to know those things helps dismiss the the fear of someone hiding themselves from you. Possibly, or, you know, I mean, I am an immigrant. I I came to this country when I was really young, and I grew up here. And for most of my life, I've been in milieus that are very different from my family and you know you find ways to make connections with people not by pointing out their differences but by pointing out what you have in common and I think if you can bypass the differences long enough to actually build a bond and have a connection then right you can focus on the differences in a way that's not as damaging that doesn't feel as scary well, we always kind of struggle for icebreakers, and and it it just seems like it maybe is a little tougher when when we imagine that there's more ice to break. Possibly, but if you see somebody who's doing something familiar that you recognize, even if they're wearing a hijab or if they're visibly different culturally from you, right? I mean, if you're at a festival and they're eating ice cream and you lock eyes on them. You know, the question is not, why are you wearing a hijab? The question is, oh, is not ice cream great? I went back for thirds. And from there, you start a conversation that allows you to get to know somebody. And and really, we're, we're almost out of time, but I think that's kind of a good place to um, to end with with the idea that, and that's something we should try to do. I think so. The book is um, called Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, written uh, by my guest, Falgani Sheth. Did I say that right? Falgani. Falgani. Yes, that's fine. See, I'm... No worries. Falgani, I am so terrible with names, but thank you for your patience. <laughs> Not at all. And thank you for spending this time and, and sharing your thoughts uh, with me and the listeners this morning. I appreciate it very much. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. And 
obviously the book is a great place to start. But do you have um, a website you'd like to share where people can learn more about you and your work past, present, and future? I think they can Google me at Emory's um, Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies website. Um, it's just emory.wgss.edu. And and all they have to do is figure out how to spell falcony. <laughs> Not at all, actually. <laughs> all you have to do is uh, figure out uh, the, the website, and my photo will come up once you hit the department. So, Well, I appreciate uh, this conversation very much, and, and thank you so much for being here, and keep up the good work. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, Falgany Sheth is a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory University and the author of Unruly Women. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Joe Bye from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Quiplet Technology, My Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Oh, great lovers of the world, lend me thy ears. Where has love wrought? <laughs> love has wrought beauty. Love is the world. The world is love, and the great lovers of the world have made the earth a very precious, beautiful, and lovely place. Where is the love? Tell me. It's, it's there. It's there. <laughs> oh, where is the love? It's there. Where is the love? Do you know where the love is? It's there, Tom. It's all around you. Love is everywhere. Love is ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-moving. Love is passionate. It is flowing. It is sweet. It is wonderful. Love is compassion. Love is... Love is God. This is a song of two lovers. Right. Not world-famous lovers. Not a Romeo and Juliet. Not that type of a love. But two people whose love was an unrequited love. Unrequited love. Very beautiful love. A love that very few people ever hear of. It's a story of Herman and Sally. You've heard of them, huh? Herman was a lobster. And Sally was a crab. <laughs> never work out that way, will it? <laughs> Herman met Sally on the beach one night The sea was calm and the starfish were bright He looked at her and she looked at him And it was true love at first sight Now Herman told his folks about the girl he found And they said, Herman, there must be other girls around <laughs> Cause crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Everybody sing now! Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Where is love? There. Try singing like that. <laughs> poor Herman and poor Sally Whence did their love whence wrong? Oh, the bittersweet pain of love's nectar. <laughs> yes, Herman, though he loved Sally, could not marry her, could not have her for his own. Herman was a lobster, Sally was a crab. Herman lived in a restricted neighborhood. <laughs> so he had to make a decision. And Herman made a decision which was sad and very hard for him to do. But then, being a lobster, Herman had no backbone. <laughs> Herman told Sally and it broke her heart. She had loved that lobster right from the start. He took her in his closet and said, I'll always be yours, but still. 
we really have to part Sally said let's talk to your mom and your dad I'll show them that crabs really aren't that bad <laughs> They turned her away, what would the neighbors say? And they laughed at the funny walk she had Two, three, Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Sing out friends now Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Once again, gang! Oh, crabs walk sideways Lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take it for your pain One more time now! Oh, crabs walk sideways Lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take it for your pain One day on a sandbar What did Herman see But his little old Sally Walking straight as can be He said, Sally, I can take you in my family And she said, Herman don't you street at me. <laughs> Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight and we won't let you take it for your man. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. As I walk through this wicked world Searching for light in the dark depths of insanity I ask myself, is all hope lost? Is there only Hatred and misery And each time I feel like this inside There's one thing I want to know What's so funny about peace, love and understanding What's so funny about peace, love and understanding Standing What's so fun about peace, love, and understanding? Sometimes So well 
your new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>